This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, along with our series co-founder Suzanne Kreider today. On this edition, we'll continue our series on healing a country's wounds by talking about the strategy of public dialogues. A past Peace Talks radio program on transitional justice included legal strategies such as truth and reconciliation commissions, but this program deals with conversations that aren't judicially mandated. Instead, public dialogues happen when people willingly listen to and talk with their fellow citizens, develop understandings across differences, and collaborate on shared solutions. They discover that space between the two poles of agree and disagree about an issue. The need for public dialogue is most acute in complex issues such as racial equity, poverty, climate change, and mental health, where it's hoped that it will increase participatory democracy. Suzanne Kreider today talks with three experts in this field. Later, Carolyn Lukensmeyer, former and first executive director of the National Institute for Civil Discourse, headquartered at the University of Arizona. Marion Sanchez will be along too, community engagement manager with the city of Austin. But first, Suzanne connects with Carolyn Abdullah, the senior director of the Strengthening Democratic Capacity Team at Everyday Democracy, a nonprofit initiative which for decades now has assisted communities tackling long-standing problems by bringing diverse groups of people together in public community dialogue. Carolyn, let's talk about the three D words. Now, debate, many people know what that means. It's like when a few people have disagreements, about what they believe in, and they're trying to convince each other, maybe an audience, of their beliefs. Well, the other two D words, people get confused about them, dialogue and deliberation. Give us a synonym for each one or how, like a simple explanation, how they're different. Dialogue implies listening. It implies engagement. It implies an openness. It implies collaboration. When I think about deliberation, I think about reflection. I think about careful thought. I think about weighing options. I think about some intentionality around um, listening to different views, the purpose of action. You work for an organization called Everyday Democracy, and they have a model called Dialogue to Change. Tell us just briefly about each of those three steps, organize, dialogue, action. Everyday Democracy, of course, is a national nonprofit organization that's been around over 30 years supporting community level change in partnership with coalitions, other nonprofits, foundations, uh, towns, local governments. And to make that support something that is meaningful on the ground, we work in partnership and we actually bring a process of engagement, which we call community engagement which is rooted in those three pillars you mentioned earlier. The organizing component we talk about is for inclusivity, meant for both 
what you may call traditional stakeholders and non-traditional stakeholders, the grass tops and the grassroots, so to speak. It is for those whose voices often get left at the margins of society. And so that organizer component should never be skipped because it takes effort, time, and resources to ensure we have all of those voices in the engagement process of the dialogue. So that's why our first pillar is called organizing. Our second pillar is around dialogue. This is where the actual learning, the cross connections take place. And the dialogue itself is rooted in social contact theory, which means over time, if you engage with someone, you begin to understand, learn, reduce stereotypes about the other, and open a space for collective understanding. That's guided by the tools we publish and create. Our discussion materials will guide that process over anywhere between a four to six week process. And then we move into the action component. Again, based on our experience, we recognize that oftentimes individuals will love to engage in active listening in the dialogue component. Some, however, realize that that's beautiful, that's fine. I have grown, I have learned, but I want my life condition to look different, to be better. And it's very important for some voices to understand and to accept and to, be know, and to know that there will be some action coming out of these conversations, which is why we created the action component that would follow the dialogue component. And all of this, Susan, is wrapped around a broader umbrella of racial equity work. The organizing work, the dialogue engagement component, and the action component is embedded around a lens which we call racial equity because the goal of all of this work is so local communities can best address their problems where exa while examining the role historical structural inequities have played in creating the current conditions that they see in their communities. Tell us a couple quick examples, and that would be that you've seen or you've heard of. So you've seen maybe the whole group change or you've seen institutional change. Mm -hmm. One example would be a local community in Florida where they were engaging around the issue of race. And one of the outcomes they talked about was how the local paper talked about their neighborhood or their community, oftentimes in negative ways. So um, without pointing out specific names uh, uh, at this particular point, um, I will say an example in which the local community decided to do as a group coming out of these conversations was to meet with the local paper, you know, the editor, and talk about the way they covered their neighborhood. And in those conversations, it led to creating sort of this um, ad hoc group that worked with the local paper to really begin to publish positive stories about what the community members were doing in their community to address everything from crime to clean up to youth mentoring program and projects. Um, there's an example of a dialogue around race and 
it just happened to be a bank president was part of these conversation in the local community. And they were discussing how difficult it was for some communities of color to obtain small business loans, particularly um, young business entrepreneurs and a part of the city's community. Upon hearing this, because there was a perception that anyone who has the right credentials, uh, credit worthiness, can obtain a small business loan, uh, no issue, until the president was part of a dialogue on race in his community. Hearing these stories of people saying, I've gone to banks, I've been turned down, I've gone to your bank, I've been down, I have uh, a credit score that's X, I have these other collateral um, items also, but I've been turned down. And listening over time to some of these stories that people told him he engaged in, he went back to his bank and began to examine some of their lending practices and policies. And not only that, he actually brought in his peers and to have these conversation with his peer groups, other bank presidents. They were able to put together some small loans, a package to be packaged loans for small business lenders of color in that community to help support them as they were starting their enterprises. One example I just mentioned real quickly is um, there was a fatality in a community in a city some years back and we engaged that community around um, the issue of community and police engagement. And lo and behold, uh, I remember an officer telling me he walked into the room and there was this community activist that he knew was going to cause trouble. He had heard about him. He knew of him. And he said, oh my, I'm in this space. I don't feel comfortable. And later the community activist had told me in a separate conversation that he was in the room and he saw this officer, which he didn't care for. And he did not feel comfortable being in that space. I went back to this community about a couple of years later and I interviewed both of them. And lo and behold, they had put together a little video about their growth and their relationship. And I said, one of the things that's different now, what's different for you now? And the activist told me, well, I can pick up the phone and call him now because I also work in prisoner reentry and I get him and he comes and I've gotten him involved in prisoner reentry work. I couldn't have done that before we had that engagement. With the facilitators, what are some peace promoting questions that they can begin with or they can ask folks? They may ask the questions, for example, if we're talking about so let's say law enforcement or policing or community police relations. That's the topic. That's the public issue we're having our dialogue on. A question might be, what did your parents tell you about policing when you grew up? Or if you are an officer, what did you learn about policing when you grew up? You know, um, what did it mean to you to be a, in a community where you saw law enforcement in a positive light? What did it look like for you in a community where you saw things about law enforcement that you wanted to change? So you want to always start with people from a place of ownership. 
If the issue is education, it may be a question like, what was schooling like for you? Before you can talk about what needs to happen and change in education, let's go back to your own experience in education. Because some people in that circle would have, will have had a very bad experience in education. Other folks, not so much the case. And that's why we say everyone owns their own experience. Then we move to, well, what's going on right now in our community around this particular topic? How does education look like for all the students in this community? How does policing look like, feel like to everybody in this community? And why is this different? What's the root of the problem? Carolyn, it's very impressive that your organization, Everyday Democracy, has its own equity officer. So talk a little bit about, because it's really all about peace building and healing wounds. So in your organization, what do you feel comfortable sharing that, you know, an issue that you all have really tried to build peace around or talked about? Because I'm so impressed that you're really in your organization walking the talk that you ask other folks to do. Our work began with just um, a very few people of color in our organization, um, acknowledging and recognizing this work of democracy building cannot be done without examining the structural inequities in America. We cannot do this work in America without um, acknowledging the history of our country, what the democracy was built upon. We cannot do this without acknowledging uh, a slaveocracy that contributed to America. And so it's critically important that as the organization is seeking to support the work of others out there, that we work internally on our own understanding and development. And I'm happy to say we have grown from an organization where we were one or two people of color to um, over half of our staff represent people of color and in also in leadership positions in the organization, along with our board. We are building this journey together. So you used a word I had never heard before. I think you said slaveocracy. Yes, I did. Talk about the difference between slaveocracy and democracy. Well, for me, um, slaveocracy represents a system that was created based on the enslavement of a whole group of people for the purpose of creating and maintaining a political and economic system in the early days of the creation of America. And I say slaveocracy because it brought with it um, the acronyms of the systems that are needed to support the political and economic system of America. It brought with it a philosophy and a culture of white supremacy. It brought with it the absence of uh, group culture and identity of the people enslaved. Losing that culture, losing your own identity, losing your language, losing your faith, losing your way of being, and creating in place another system that upheld everything that looked different than you. But democracy, now, of course, as you know, is just the opposite. I'm guessing that 
the process of dialogue helps reduce the slaveocracy amount. Yes. Okay. Yes, because you have to begin to acknowledge and recognize the harm that has been done and the and the effects of the harm. So right now in the 21st century, we are attempting to address the effects and the ongoing perpetuation of those harms, right? Engagement, dialogue and engagement is one aspect and one way to do that. And so the dialogue allows for an openness for people who want to have communities that actually support all people in that community. Carolyn, let's talk about experts because I've seen like national commissions, even local commissions are often made up of all the experts and that's good. However, I love what Thomas Jefferson said about public policy. He said the best public policy comes from integrating the knowledge of experts with the wisdom of common people. How do you all support this peace process of balancing experts and citizens? In the organizing model, we deliberately seek to bring in the voices both um, at the traditional expert level and local community level. Again, expert bring or technocrats um, bring a certain expertise and knowledge around a particular issue, whether it's transportation or housing or whatever that issue may be, because they are learned in that field of practice. Community people bring a particular lived experience in the issue because they are the recipients of the outputs of the experts' policies. And so if you're talking about, for example, criminal justice reform, we have a lot of stakeholders, experts in that field. You also have people who have gone through that system or in that system who are the recipients of that criminal justice, or some might say injustice system having their voices at the table integrated, having their voices in the design of reform and transformation is crucial to not reproducing the same inequities and harm. The harm, the recipient has the best expertise information about what needs to happen so that harm does not get reproduced. You cannot talk about um, what a rape victim needs to be repaired from a rape by experts and medical doctors who have never experienced the act. You have to have the victims, the, the, the recipients or the beneficiaries of that act in the conversation. You can hear more from Carolyn Abdullah with Everyday Democracy by seeking out the complete interview with her at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Also linked there to Everyday Democracy's website. In a moment to Austin, Texas, to see how they get citizens engaged in public dialogue there after a short break.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Suzanne Kreider. Next on this program, exploring public dialogue strategies for dealing with community issues and conflict, Suzanne Kreider introduces us to Marion Sanchez, Community Engagement Manager with the City of Austin, to talk with us about how she gets citizens engaged in public dialogue there. Your website in Austin is called Speak Up Austin, and one of the software programs that powers it is called Engagement HQ from Bang the Table. Well, I've noticed that lots of U.S. cities are starting to use this online public engagement. Could you say what's the positives and the negatives of using online? What I'm noticing is that many communities are engaging not only with the city, but also with friends and family online, over the phone, maybe with mobile technology, face-to-face. And so what we try to do is to create an environment that is similar and natural. The online engagement, such as what you mentioned, our Speak Up Austin, is one option of many for people to engage. So the goal for our team is to open lines of communication. And if online is something that works for some families, we want to make sure we have that option for those families. For the families that prefer to have perhaps a cup of tea and have a conversation with some of our leadership, then that's the option that we offer. Other people prefer to answer a survey at a recreation center, and we want to make sure we have that. We always look at the community from the perspective of equity. Who are the communities that have the less opportunity to engage, and what are the barriers around that engagement? And as we analyze those barriers, we're trying to create avenues to break those in a way that if they shall decide to engage, they do have an avenue to do so. Since you work for the city of Austin, you have to decide which topics you're going to put like online, which topics are going to be in person, and which topics are a combination. How do you decide that when people are allowed to come in person? Well, we we don't really choose what topics are going online or in a face-to-face engagement. Typically, topics come from the departments, and typically it's an initiative that they need to hear from community how it might work best. And so when we look at our tools, whether they're online or face-to-face, what I try to think is about who's last, who is the person that has the hardest time to engage, and who are the most affected communities. Once I understand what communities are the ones that are having the hardest time, then I create a mix of tools that will help them engage if they shall decide to engage. Typically, we try to have things both online and, you know, in this particular case, because we're living a different period of our life with COVID, then the face-to-face is limited. And so right now, most of our toolbox is online. Equality is also a peace issue. And I'm wondering how public engagement balances all this stuff. So let me give you some examples. You might have a person who has no internet access 
Or you have a person who's very domineering and talks a lot or writes a lot. You might have someone who's very silent. You might also have a person who just says, this is so stupid. I would never be involved in this. Now, how do you balance all these different approaches? What the variety of opinions does is that it provides us a window of opportunity to understand what people are thinking behind what they're sharing. What I have learned is that no one shares their full self. They'll share what is convenient at that given moment according to the situation that we have. And so when someone says something like, I don't want to be involved in this process, then I have to go between the lines and try to think, well, but you are here and you want to be involved. I'm just not involving you in a way that we can connect. And so that is a challenge for me to figure out what is it that I could do to bring you into this dialogue. Perhaps it's location, perhaps it's the language barrier, perhaps it's people talking at the same time and this person not able to express their opinion. It could be a number of things, but it is my job to listen and then understand how could I open this line of communication because that feedback is equally important. And quite frankly, I don't really create these dialogues thinking on equality. I look at it more from the equity standpoint. And when we have that subtle difference, it really creates a different environment. When we talk about equity, we need to think about people's stories and then telling their own story, as opposed to having somebody else telling their story. And so what I'm trying to figure out when I'm engaging and designing a conversation is who are the most affected communities that perhaps we have not heard from? And many times I notice that some people come representing those communities, but for me it's more important to hear coming from the community, what's the story, what's the challenge, what's the opportunity, what can we do together? And so I try to elevate those stories first and make sure that I have their feedback, their opinions, their dialogue, and then I move to the other communities as we map out the engagement piece. What's an example of some healing or peacemaking that you've seen happen in, in Austin because of the public dialogues? Oh, my goodness. That's, that's a big question. Austin has a long history of, I'll say, it, lack of dialogue with communities. It started in the 1920s when we created a master plan where we moved people of color to one side of a highway and, and it continues by basically not providing the services. The healing process of a large community that have suffered for so many years is a difficult one. I think what we have done as an organization is learn through the process to understand, to hear a little better, and to be able to provide services to the communities. I don't think that Austin, at least those communities, have basically, quote-unquote, healed 
per se. I think that we are at the beginning process where we can hear each other. But the healing process is going to take a long time because we're looking at, at years and years and, and it's difficult to move forward. So right now where we are as a city, I will say we are in a listening mode, humbling, hoping that we can move forward and continue to do better. Let's talk about how to name or how to address a group. For example, some groups want to be called Black people or African-American people or some other name. But then there are some people who say, no, don't put me in a group. Don't address me as a member of a group. Address me as an individual. So how do you peacefully deal with that naming issue? What we do is that we look at demographics and we try to understand what demographics of our city look like because we want to make sure that we are addressing the needs of everybody in our community. And some communities have a bigger challenge to engage and some have an easier time to engage. And so what we try to figure out is what is it that is not allowing this particular neighborhood or this block or maybe this region of the city that they're not bringing people to have a conversation with us. And so I don't address people by by their background or their culture or their religious belief. I try to address them by their name. I'm guessing when people move to a whole nother country, it's like a tectonic change. It's huge. How would you deal with and how do you encourage community engagement for people who are no longer in their home country? Susan, that's an amazing question because we come from communities. Many people, when they come from all over the world and, you know, in your case, you move from one place to United States to another place in United States, you still are in shock basically because the culture is different. The food is different. The society norms are different. You can't figure out where your place of faith is. You're making new friends. But somehow what I have noticed is that we always find our tribe. And that tribe could be someone that have a shared value or maybe a shared way of cooking maybe someone that have some secrets about where to find something that you were looking that reminds you of your background, your country, your city, and you gravitate toward those communities. And so it took me a little bit of time to unpack that situation. And it was one project that really gave me some light when I noticed that I keep putting people on different tables and they keep moving around. (laughs) And then I'm like, no, 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 no. You're sitting here and you're sitting here and you're in your mood and you're just like trying to do your project, right? And they change again. And so at one moment, I just basically allow it to happen. And what I noticed, it was a big shift on their body language, on their way to express themselves. They felt like they have a security blanket right next to each other because they were sitting with someone that they felt was providing that support. 
So now I just ask people to sit whatever they like. But Mardion, this is confusing to me because if we're trying to heal a nation that is very diverse, and you know, I'm a white person, so this is confusing to me that we that many people want to be in affinity groups. They want to be with their own tribe. And that makes sense because when I go out, I'm looking for the skinny white woman with gray hair. Okay, that's my tribe. (laughs) But how is a country that's very diverse ever going to heal if we don't like mix up and feel uncomfortable? The uncomfortable is what makes it comfortable. Because when you are in front of someone that is completely different than yourself, and you start having this conversation, typically with sharing a meal, a simple one, you will realize that there's more in common than you think there isn't. And so I'm probably naive in my belief system, but but I'm a traveler. I have made a lot of mistakes as I travel and places that I have no clue or, or knowledge of the language. And me becoming a minority in a country, it really opened my eyes to understand that a smile, little signals with your hands, little pointy, it opens communication. What I have seen in Austin is that when I bring people together from different backgrounds, there's a little bit of curiosity to understand each other. Now, I'm not saying that everybody is ready to take that step, right? Some people just want to be in the corner and look around and see how things play out. And that's okay. But the more that we see people that are different than ourselves, the more similar they are to ourselves. And that's what is going to bring that healing for diversity. Regarding the future, some experts say, uh, you know, in-person dialogues and town halls are a thing of the past. We should move into online communication. We should move into we should move into gamification and make everything into a game and give points and have winners. What do you feel is the future of public dialogue? I feel the future of public dialogue lands on what bring people together. When we talk about online, you know, like different tools that are out there, or we talk about tank hall, like you mentioned it, if we don't have something that brings people together, they're not going to come together. Um, When I think of virtual engagement, I like to think of it as a room. I'm inviting people to a room, but it's it's not a physical space. It's a space within my computer And I try to make it as pleasant as possible as I will be in a face-to-face. I could not imagine a community moving forward, not enjoying each other's presence. And so I think that communities will always find a way to engage among each other in the presence of each other. There is an energy that we cannot recreate when we do virtual engagement and that energy is from the tone of voice to the smell of our clothes to the way that we dress 
to how we sit and we exchange a word and how we say hello and goodbye, we can manufacture that virtually. And so we will be a time where we see each other again and we will do this type of engagement that I believe will continue for as long as we are a humanity. Maybe some of our audience members want to get involved in public dialogue. How could they get involved? Facilitating, you can learn through going to a school, but being caring is something that you need to practice every day. And you practice by helping your neighbor, brothers and sisters, someone that you don't know, someone that is in need. And you will learn to read people's needs without having to hear the need. And that really helps a lot when you facilitate to understand where people are coming from and understand that they're presenting the best self they can at that given moment, but there is more behind. And so I will say that if someone enjoys dialogue, enjoys having conversations, and is really good about dinner parties, maybe they have a career in community engagement. What I like to say is that my job is to engage communities in dialogue. But it is everybody's job to do that. So if there is a new person moving across the street, or if there's someone that you saw sitting at a party and they're just waiting for someone to say hello, challenge yourself. Go and say hello. Be the very first person. Have the courage to say, what can I do for you? How can I introduce you around? Because I think that having that courage to pick up somebody's hand is what is going to bring peace to our world. Hear more from Marion Sanchez, Community Engagement Manager with the City of Austin, by seeking out the complete interview with her at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Also link to more resources that the City of Austin and others are using to promote engagement and dialogue to tackle problems. In a moment, the former Executive Director of the National Institute for Civil Discourse. She'll have more for us, as you might guess, on how to make public dialogue work better, more civilized, right? So stay tuned. It's Peace Talks Radio on the air. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Suzanne Kreider. And now to close this program, exploring public dialogue strategies, Suzanne visits with Carolyn Lukensmeyer, former and first executive director of the National Institute for Civil Discourse, which is headquartered at the University of Arizona. 
I sent you an email requesting an interview, and when you responded positively, you wrote, I am glad you are doing this series and acknowledging in the title the importance of healing, because we do call it healing a country's wounds. Now, why do you think that dialogue should be used for healing? Never before in modern history, probably not since the Civil War, have we been so overtaken with an understanding both of how we are wounded as individuals right today in a contemporary sense, and how much wounding we as people and we as a nation are carrying from our history. So to me, there is a readiness in a vast number, it's millions of Americans who understand that where we are in this very divisive political culture and hyper-partisanship and the demonizing and villainizing of each other as people, the vast majority of Americans know it's wrong. The vast majority of Americans want it to be different, but most of them have no idea of how to set up the circumstances to create a safe healing space. And that's what so many excellent organizations provide across the country today, really designing the spaces and the processes for people who are estranged from each other and people who no longer trust the government to come together in a safe space to talk and more important, frankly, to listen carefully to one another, to understand why they hold such different perspectives. And that is the beginning of the healing process. Carolyn, you founded a nonpartisan nonprofit in 1995 called America Speaks, and it closed later in 2014. But you use what's called large-scale engagement. Tell us what that is and why it's important for healing. Well, I was privileged to be the first woman to be select, selected as chief of staff to the governor of the state of Ohio. And I then worked in the Clinton-Gore White House. And in those two experiences, I really profoundly understood how the voice of the collective American people was closed out of the process except voting and polling. So the point in creating large scale engagement for we the people to once again affect the public policies that so profoundly impact our lives was to create the spaces and design the processes that could bring thousands of people together so they together could look deeply at an issue and make a collective decision. For example, we worked in New York City after 9-11. 5,000 people were gathered at the Jacob Javits Center, all of them reviewing the initial conception pl conceptual plans for rebuilding the towers in lower Manhattan. That was a very dramatic experience because when the public saw what the plans were, they rejected them unanimously. And to the credit to the mayor's representatives and the governor's representatives, they stood on that platform at the end of the day and they said, we have heard you. We will have to start this process over. Carolyn, I'm loving that there were 5,000 people, but I even have conflict with one person. So how is large scale engagement peace promoting? 
Well, imagine this. Think of a large convention center, a big open floor. For 5,000 people, there were 500 tables. And at each table, there were 10 citizens or, and residents seated. And each table had a professionally trained process facilitator. And each person had material, fact-based material to be using throughout the day. So you were talking with 10 other people who you had a chance first to share values with. You had a chance to share your view of what the tragedy was on 9-11 and what was important in rebuilding New York City. So trust was built table by table by table. Then each table had a computer on the table and each person had a voting keypad device. So after we asked a specific question, for example, what values do you believe should drive the rebuilding of lower Manhattan? Each table picked the values they wanted. The facilitator tapped it into the computer. They went to a computing station in the hall with live people that people could see. They read all the data from the 500 tables and it came out in themes. Then we projected those themes up on a large screen in front of 5,000 people. So in a period of about 20 minutes, 5,000 people agreed on about five values that we were able to report back to the city and the state's leaders in order to guide their decision-making. So the way it works is you create trust with a small group, you use technology to bring together the output of each of those small groups, and then every single person has the opportunity to express their specific view of what the final decision should be. Yes, and sometimes I do notice I'm worried that if a person has an idea, let's say they have one idea, but the other 10 people have a different idea. So is that one person's idea like thrown out because it's not statistically important? The way we worked was on those, like when we got to the place where we were, how many floors should the new buildings have, which was a big deal in terms of safety and skyscrapers. If there was a minority opinion, and on that issue there was, there were a small number of people that really felt that for America to show its strength, for America to show its exceptionalism, the towers should be built back taller than they were before. So it was very possible for us, again, using the trust model at the tables and recording minority opinions and reporting those minority opinions back in the same time frame that we reported the majority opinions. And you know the amazing thing, Suzanne, I did this work for 18 years and never did I see an exception when the minority knew they had been heard fully. In the end, they were quite willing to add their voice to the collective voice that represented the majority of people. America Speaks, the nonprofit that you founded, used technological engagement quite a bit. So talk about what that is, what it entails, and why it was important for these large-scale engagements. Well, our goal 
was to have a large enough number of people making a collective decision that elected officials and other decision makers would take it seriously. And in order to do that in a meaningful time frame, we combined, when I invented the method, it was basically taking the New England town meeting, which still occurs today, where townspeople get together and determine the town's budget and the town's school budget. And they do it all voice to voice with a moderator. Well, that can get you to maybe 200 people or a really sophisticated moderator, maybe 300. But we wanted to do 1,000, 3,000, even 10,000 sometimes. So we combined the small table discussions with each table having its own computer and every person having a keypad for voting purposes. And by using the computers, we could quickly take the outcome of each table discussion and experts reading those themes as they came in could find where the commonalities across all the tables were. We then used good old fashioned technology and just projected that up in the screen in the front of the room. And that allowed people to see not just what their table said, but what, what all 500 tables said or all 100 tables or whatever the number was. So it was a combination of excellent face-to-face -face discussions facilitated in a professional and safety, creating a safe space to explore difference combined with support of computer technology and voting keypads is how we did it at America Speaks. Today, if you were gonna replicate America Speaks model, you could actually use voting devices that are available online. So every person in the room could take their phone and link to a voting device online. So some things have been made much more simple and much more available. But the fundamental technology is the same as what we used in the early 2000s and all the way up to 2014. But when you say take their phone, doesn't that like delete the people who don't own a phone? I know most people do own phones now, but not everyone does. That's a fair and a very important statement, which I want to support. We, uh, and that brings me something else I should talk about is who was in the room, because we always guaranteed that it would be a demographic representative sample of that jurisdiction, but I'll come back to that. So for anyone who did not carry a phone, we provided them with the same keypad device that I spoke with you about before. So there was no disadvantage to not having a phone. Okay. Carolyn, tell us about the national town meeting in June of 2010. That was the last large scale meeting that America Speaks ever held. And it was, we were in 19 cities across the country. It was a total of either 3,400 people or 3,500 people. And our task was to deal with the deficit, the US deficit. So the project was called Our Budget, Our Economy, Our Budget, Our Deficit. And across those 19 cities, Philadelphia was where we uh, led the program from. In Philadelphia, there were 750 people gathered. In other cities, it was different sizes. And in each case, whatever the number was, it was demographically representative of that city. So for example, 
the Senate budget chair and ranking member, Kent Conrad and Judd Gregg, were, were part of our link for that conversation. In the House, it was the Ways and Means Committee, which does the budget in the House. So they knew and their staffs knew that whatever the collective decision of these 3,400 people was, it actually represented America. Carolyn, what's the future of large scale engagement? So we not only need the capacity to do large scale national conversations, we need the capacity to do large scale global conversations, particularly for example, on how we deal with the rapidly increasing threat of climate change. Where we need to go in the future is a combination of expanding technology. German, Germany has done a platform that we're now adapting in the US called My Country Talks. The first two experiments have been done in this country called America Talks. Your listeners could actually go to americatalks.us and look at what happened in uh, June as the first round of an America Talks conversation, and I know it will be repeated again in probably six months. That is a totally online experience. We need to go to a place where we can combine some face-to-face -face work with the online capacities that didn't exist in 2010 or 2014 that now do, so that we can get to very large numbers. Why is it important to get to large numbers? Because on these tough, tough public policy issues, not only do you need to have a collective decision of a representative public, you need that public to become a constituency for change for the common good, which after all is what democratic societies were designed to be able to do. I'm happy to say that a process that was first initiated in British Columbia, Canada, by the then prime minister of that province called citizen assemblies have now been replicated in the United States, in the state of Oregon and in some cities, but more important, have been replicated in at least five countries to deal with national issues. For example, citizens assemblies were used in Ireland to deal with the very, very tough issue of gay rights. No one thought the Irish parliament would be capable of stepping up to what was beginning to happen in other liberal democracies around gay rights. But the parliament's commitment to taking seriously the outcome of citizen assembly on gay rights led to the passage of that law in Ireland. Great Britain, also, France have used citizens' assembly on the tough issues of climate change. It has been proposed to the Biden administration through Ambassador John Kerry that the US could do a climate change national process using citizen assemblies. You know, Suzanne, given that I've been doing this work for 30 years, I'm often asked to speak candidly about am I optimistic or am I pessimistic about our capacity to get out of the mess that we are in? And my answer is very clear. It depends on what I pay attention to. 
if I focus all my attention on what's happening in Washington and what's coming out of Congress and the hyperpartisanship and the big money in politics and the gerrymandering that's going to happen for 2022, then I'm very pessimistic because those dynamics are not going to change quickly enough to get us out of the mess we're in. But if I focus my attention to what I see happening in communities all across this country and in other countries, like I just mentioned, many Western European democracies, Australia, New Zealand, Latin American countries that have done participatory budgeting decades before we even considered it. If I focus on the community level, where every time I, my most recent leadership was at the National Institute for Civil Discourse, every community we went into in the United States, we found ordinary Americans stepping up to create safe processes to get past our divisiveness. So I'm putting my hearts and my belief in the collective will and wisdom of the American people and our capacity to put enough pressure through the levers that we do influence with institutional power to get us through this mess. We've done it before, and I believe we can do it again. You can hear more from Carolyn Lukensmeyer, who pioneered the work of the National Institute for Civil Discourse as its first executive director at our website. Look there for the complete interview with her, bonus content and resource links too about public discourse, all at the website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Also there you'll see photos, transcripts, downloadable and streamable audio files. And there's a donate button that helps you engage with us and help us keep all this peacemaking conversation and content going for you. Join in at peacetalksradio.com because most of our support comes from people just like you. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Music